as we uh, continue on here in 2023, it's an honor to uh, bring in a cat, uh, a guy who has been a prodigious writer for some time uh, over all sorts of different mediums and different types of topics and subjects, prolifically writing for a magazine that, as far as I can remember from the time I was born, it was in my grandparents' house on the Lower West Side, the New Yorker, and... Um, you know, it just uh, it was funny because a few weeks ago I had a chance to partake in this um, podcast called Guess the Year, and it was uh, really a divine time. Uh, it was an, the opportunity to uh, guess uh, the year of a certain Grateful Dead show that was being streamed, and uh, I made it to the finals, and uh, the moderator wound up um, putting on a couple of, uh, of years that um, my guest had foisted on him, and I was enraged because... The, it wasn't even that the sound quality was bad. It was just that it was, uh, they were good. They were really good, hard years. It was hard to define in my ear. Granted, it had been over an hour into the show. But in any event, um, I heard back from my guest, uh, and uh, we've been trading some emails and uh, get a chance today to, to talk to him about a myriad of different things. Nick Palmgarten, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Hi, Jake. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's an honor, man. You know, I, I did want to talk about um, the I, I read this, uh, the Boomer and Carton, uh, this, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the cat on WFAN. It was a fascinating uh, piece that you wrote about him. Yeah, Craig Carton. Yeah, Craig Carton. And I, I was out of long gone from New York when they really became popular. But, you know, I, it's amazing to me time and time again when I read your, your work and, and for that matter, the way I've been reading a lot of people for that have written for the New Yorker for a long time, I wanted to ask you about how you decide um, in terms of getting information through questions or, um, you know, sort of background or research and then deciding how you want to write about it. And I'll give you an example, like right at the beginning you talk about him getting out of bed and he's, you see this sort of, you know, sort of couple maybe uh, out early morning and lovebirds maybe. And he gets in the shower, gets out, comes downstairs, walks down the stairs and the woman comes up and says, you, are you Craig Carton? He said, yes, I am. And she said, you're under arrest. I'm the FBI. And I wanted to know, like, that was written in like a story form. But how do you decide how you want to portray each of these scenes within the the actual article you know i don't know how i decide it you know it's it's a i guess that's part of the that's part of the process is you know you go out you go out into the world and you in this case you know I, I reached out to craig carton who was at that point um you know awaiting sentencing i think uh absolutely and uh you know he he tells me his story and he tells me his story in, in, in a dramatic personal first person way um, and, and then I have, then my job is to check his story, hear the other versions of the story, um, find out how much of what he said, you know, holds up scrutiny, how much of it is his version of events that's, that's delusional, whatever it may be. Uh, but that particular lead, as we call it to the story was that, that was his story as he told it to me. And I just basically uh you know transform what is his first person narration of a of an incident in his life and and sort of tell it from a you know a uh 
you know, a third person omniscient narrator point of view, you know, I know I, so now instead of me just quoting him, I'm writing it as though I, I know it, as though I know what's inside his mind. But what, the only thing that I know, the only way I know what's inside his mind is because he has conveyed that to me about his state of mind and about, you know, his his process is slowly dawning recognition that what what was happening to him was that he was getting arrested. Um, I, I, oh, so this is really important because this is brilliant, man. It's I mean, maybe it's uh, it's so ingrained that. Uh, when did you start to cultivate? I mean, is transforming. I don't remember learning that in, in at Boston University, but maybe we did. But I, I mean, when did I don't you, know. You... <laughs> I don't know when. That, I, I mean, I, it's from reading, I suppose. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I, know that, yeah. I know that there's sort of different schools of of journalism. Um, you know, you you can't really do that in a newspaper. Um, it, it you know it's storytelling, right. but you know nonfiction, long form nonfiction, I, I think allows for that that conceit that um, when you're writing about someone and you're writing about what they're seeing or what they're experiencing or even God forbid what's in their mind, uh, which is just another version of what they're seeing and what's they're what they're hearing. But anyway, uh, that you are doing so on the basis of of, of information that they have given you almost directly, you know not even, it can be even close to verbatim, you know, or, or you're just, or you're slightly turning it into something a little more, you know, um, <clears throat> I don't know, just you turning it into your own prose. But uh, yeah, the idea is that uh, he describes the experience to me. I tell the experience as though I were narrating him as a character in a novel, um, but I'm not making anything up, you know, and everything, everything. So for example, the way the New Yorker works is from that scene, the fact checker will call him and go through it and sort of, you know, phrase by phrase, detail by detail, thought by thought, um, check that those are things that he has said that he would cop to that he still, you know, that he still holds to be true. Right. Uh, so it's 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 not it's not a, you know, it's not like new journalism or whatever that whatever you call that. It's not. I'm not playing fast and loose. Except with the except with the narrative technique, I guess. But it's not something you know. It's not something I think about too technically. It's it's just sort of. I don't know where I picked it up. I mean, I've obviously read read some over the years and uh, developed a you know a style and a point of view and a way of a way of of uh, taking the information I get from the reporting and turning it into a story. Um, you well, know. also, like, I mean, it, it brings the reader in. I mean, just reading it like that, you have to decide what's going to be more uh, tantalizing for the reader. I, I To me, it's like almost uh, your work uh, in some ways is like small, uh, many forms of like, it could be like a Netflix series. Uh, it's It goes back and forth. And I'm always fascinated by, you know, not to get, I don't want to paint with a broad brush, but. I, you're a little bit older than me, and I was wondering if you could talk about um, some really cool, eccentric uh, teachers that you had that sort of opened your mind to this, because you're not playing fast and loose. This is total script writing in some ways, and I'm just wondering if you could talk about cats that you, you were inspired by in high school or even college that opened your mind to a less linear way of of writing uh that's interesting i mean there you know there i could talk about actual teachers that i had you know english teachers writing teachers i could talk about editors that i've had i could talk about 
I mean, a lot of it's from reading or or or, or seeing films or watching documentaries or, uh, um, you know, just or being around people when they tell stories. Uh, you know, I I had I had I had good teachers. I had good English teachers in in grade school who you know uh-huh. I, I think, you know, starting the first story I ever wrote like in fifth grade was you know about was about an old teacher at a school, an old baddie lady, you know, who goes to see her now, her former pupils who are now graduated and are now like New York City grownups. And the whole, the, the whole conceit was that they each had a different point of view of, you know, that she, now she regards them as a bunch of jackasses because they're, they're, <laughs> they're like, you know, um, Upper East Side grownups. Yep. Yeah, totally. And they now regard her as this sort of batty old eccentric um so some i mean obviously in fifth grade i was i was i was blessed with the even then with the the gift of being able to see points of view and other people's points of view and whatever you call it empathy and um and that wasn't taught that was just probably just picked up from you know reading children's books and watching movies uh but um you know i've i had i had good teachers a lot of good teachers some of them you know some of them were teachers that later got in trouble for things but they were good english teachers they were good readers they were good uh they're critics of writing they they demand things of me they would say you know they would say things you know i remember one one teacher uh accusing me of being a stylist in this hissing tone it was like i was wounded by it uh, mm. why was <laughs> why was why was that explain why that that was like uh why did that sting so bad because it just means I think when he, the way he said it, it was that I was putting on airs, you know, it was pretentious, and uh, oh man, that's, that stung, you know, at, at, you know, age seventeen, um, but it's it it hit a chord, and uh, you know, writing is is writing can be pretentious because you're you're you know you're you're trying to create something special you know and it's a show-offy in some ways egotistical form um and that particular moment in time like i got you know it was like a little a little uh swipe from the ruler you know proverbial swipe swipe of the ruler onto the palm you know and i um it stuck with me and i i've tried not to be not to be that thing not to be um guilty of that um even if as my friends accuse me uh you know i i often use like a i'll use a ten dollar word here and there and and force them to look shit up and oh yeah you're already making me look stuff up but i mean i mean i i I, that's that's partly because it's like that's a cool word (laughs) i mean beforehand or not or 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 it's the perfect word or it's like why not use these words that are lying around they're kind of awesome it's it's not but it's not to show off or to be like look how smart i am it's just like look at this one, you know, and then, you know, then you try to like, then you, it's almost like then you to balance accounts, then you use something like colloquial or, or, you know, slangy and, you know, you try to keep, uh, keep it at par, you know, um, anyway. Well, I, I want to read, so, I mean, let's just keep, just go a little bit deeper on this. This is a, a intertwining two of our, the reason we connected to begin with, which was the Grateful Dead. This is a quote from from Billy Kreutzman, um, and I, and then you can ex, you can um, extrapolate on your own career. Doesn't completely apply to 
journalism because, like you said, you do have editors that have to rein you in sometimes. You're on a word limit. But this is what he said. The question was, what musician influenced you most? Billy said, Elvin Jones, one of John Coltrane's drummers. I couldn't steal a lick from that man, and I wouldn't want to. But what he taught me is freedom, total freedom of expression, that it's legal to do anything you can think of. And was the, not even in your, I'm just talking like early on, um, can you talk about if you, if there was a point in your career where you stopped writing, I don't want to say in fear, but you realized that as long as you stayed within certain guidelines, um, and it was legal to do anything, you know, you could, that you could think of, right? Stylist, not just stylistically, but in the format as well. Uh, that's a good question, as they say, <laughs> which means it's a good question, but it's also a hard one to answer properly. Uh, well, you can do and again, this is yeah. just a, you just riff off the cuff, you know, I'm sure something brilliant. No, I mean, <laughs> I, it's, 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 it's very true. I mean, first of all, I, I still write in fear. I'm terrified, uh, terrified uh -huh. of being found out, I'm terrified <laughs> of being boring, uh, boorish. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to get canceled. I don't want to be thought of as stupid or pretentious. Uh, you know, all those things. And plus deadlines are just scary and it's hard to, it's hard to make stuff come out. Um, I do feel guardrails constantly. Um, you know, I have, a, a, you know, I have a thousand principles and tenets and rules that sort of bounce around all the time, everything from like the ethics of journalism and, and, and sort of moral code stuff, privacy or respect, you know, all there's all kinds of layers of that. And then there's, um, there's, there's, yeah, indecency and then there's uh questions legal questions uh storytelling parameters that are rules grammatical rules uh you know there's the order of operations that whole problem of like you know if you're gonna if you're gonna say something that requires prior information to understand it okay well then i gotta put that prior information well how do i do that you know that kind of stuff like that's stupid stuff it's like working in an electric circuit board or something oh. that occupies a ton a ton of time and that's very rules-based um, but yeah, what you're saying is, is what, you know, what, what made me think that like, I'm not just painting by numbers, you know, that there's, there is, there, you can do stuff with, with the occasional flourish. You can do stuff that has style. You can do stuff that sort of occasionally breaks out of the, breaks, breaks the format. Um, you know, I, I, again, I don't know if there's one person, I think it's, you know, reading, reading novels, reading, uh, you know, you know, re reading Ferlinghetti in, 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 in junior year of high school, you know, it could be that it was encountering Don Lillo for the first time. Uh, oh. um, you know, reading Trout Fishing in America by Richard Bradigan, you know, that was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> um, you know, yeah, totally. uh, you know, but then it could be, you know, reading John McPhee, who's, who's the opposite of Richard Bradigan, very, very deliberate, uh, structured, but, um, you know, encountering, uh, you know, some of the, the new journalism stuff in my, you know, reading, reading uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Sure. Um, and reading that kind of stuff at a time when I was, you know, experimenting with, with certain things myself, you know. So it, some of that was, some of that's expansion of mind went along with the expansion of, of reading and, and uh, 
Um, but I, I still feel like a, I'm, I'm not an experimental. I, I still feel like I'm a square writer. I'm a New Yorker writer. I, 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 I'm not. I'm, I'm not Borges for Christ's sake. I mean, <laughs> no, but I mean that's. But I, but, but it's here's the point. Yeah. Uh, absolutely, you could. The stuff wouldn't make it in there if it was that experimental. But there's still this flavor of. Um, there's you just there's an essence of pushing the boundaries just a little bit in in terms of the words that you might use or like we talked about transforming certain things and i just wonder if you could talk to younger cats especially about um i remember it's funny joe russo in my interview with him um from jrad he said that one time uh, he was in this band called Fat Mama and they were playing in the Midwest somewhere in some upholstered bar, some upholstered sewer bar. And, you know, it was a sports bar. Nobody cared what they were playing. Uh, and he was fighting it during that tour. But then that night, because for whatever reason, the confluence of events and just sort of nobody caring, he said that it was cathartic. He stopped playing in fear. And yet here you are saying that you are still in fear. And some people would say that that keeps pushing you forward. And I wanted you to talk to younger cats about being vulnerable to fear and how that is um, continued to keep you. Uh, I don't know if the right word is edgy, but it's kept you on that line um, because I think a lot of people, a lot of younger people, especially in today's world, um, they're protected from pain. Uh, their folks don't necessarily want to expose them to failure or pain. And I know that um, the greatest adversity in my life made me stronger. So I just kind of wanted you to riff on fear and how that has been a pivotal part of, of your makeup. Yeah, that's interesting. I, um, I mean, when I say I, I write from fear, I mean, I, I think I named some things that I was afraid of that, that are they're relatively petty. Um, you know, ultimately, what I'm afraid of are things that that you know. I'm afraid of death and destruction. I'm afraid of the future. I'm afraid of um, you know pestilence or, or loneliness. So that like those things are things that one is afraid of. So mm. like failing, I, I've learned not to be afraid of like of fucking up a writing assignment uh, as much as I used to be. Right. Because you know, it, it'll a I've done it a lot, so it, it'll get done. Um, B, if it doesn't get done, like no one's going to, no one's going to die. <laughs> so, you know, I have some perspective where I'm like, I'm just, and, and, and then I, so I force myself to do the work. Um, but in, in, when I'm doing the work, when it's happening, uh, um, I'm often having a pretty good time as much as I complain about it. I actually like making sentences. I like trying to say things in a, in a fresh way or in a, in a, in a succinct way. And, uh, and I like to do it in a way that would like amuse my friends. You know, it's like, I'm trying to amuse myself and amuse my friends. I'm not thinking so much about God. I want to be, I want to write a bestseller. I hope this is a big hit on the website or I don't care. You know, I don't really care about that. I just want to, I want to amuse my editor. I want to amuse my friends. I love it. Uh, and just and do the thing right. And just, and just, it's, it's sort of like, I mean, the Grateful Dead, you know, just go up there and play. And Jerry Garcia just loved to play guitar. Um, and he wasn't playing to get famous or rich. 
and he hated the and the R word was a dirty word rehearsal. You know, there was yeah. not you know you weren't you, the music was not overly precious. You know, right? But yet he was also a professional. That's right. He was also uh, had stage fright. Uh, he was also critical of himself. And when he when he when he screwed up, which was often, I think it embarrassed him. And uh, you know, it, it, as much as he, I think, had this facade of being like, "Yeah, man, we just play," and you know, he didn't like making mistakes. He didn't like he didn't like he didn't like laying down a clam. I don't think he liked forgetting the lyrics to, you know, to Franklin's Tower. I think it embarrassed him, and because um, he was a professional. Uh, but I think they built up a he built up a sort of a worldview around allowing himself to fail so that he could continue to get up there and have the guts to keep doing it in the same way that, you know, they would talk, they would talk about the band would talk about, Oh, you know, we, we we're free form. It's all anarchistic. We make it up as we go along when we, that wasn't really true, but they, they kind of built up a mythology around themselves, um, which it, which gave them room to do the thing that they did, which was sort of half of what they said it was, you know, you're absolutely yeah. correct. They weren't good enough musicians to do what they said they were doing, but right. they and they, they also they they played you know they opened with half step and then they went to here and then they did that and they did this and then they you know did the cowboy tunes and they you know it, it it was and they played them a certain way. I mean, you know, obviously when they opened up at the Dark Star or you know it was improvised, but uh, you know it's a lot of it was it's one chord, two chord jams, and it's it's you know it's within a certain parameter and. So, I mean, but still doing what they were doing was absurd. Um, <laughs> relatively speaking, to be, you know, without rehearsal, without without a real plan, just in trying to do it from, also just from memory, you know, you, you must remember the experience of being at a show, it's more when you're there than when you're listening on tape, where, you know, when you listen on tape, you know exactly where you are in the jam. You're like, oh, this is a second pass on, you know, they love each other or whatever. Right. But when you're there, sometimes you're like, where am I in the song? I have no idea. <laughs> when you're there and you're watching, you're like, how could they know where they are? You know? Oh, and I'm not I, talking I, about like when they're yeah. deep into Dark Star. I'm talking about like just when what part of Let It Grow are they in? You know? I compl uh, you're, First of all, just for the audience, um, it's just so cosmic because uh, Nick Palmgarden went to uh, his first show was arguably one of my favorite shows. I listened to it relentlessly. Uh, somehow somebody got a, you know, a VHS camcorder, you know, archaic into the venue at Meriwether Post 62784. And I have to be honest, I mean, before we get into that show specifically, <laughs> what was your, um, were you, were you aware of some kind of essence of the dead when was the first time you really got hip to them? Was it a was it a poster? Was it a, a an advertisement? Because I would say they came to Mary Post in '83, but maybe you just weren't on the bus by then. When when did you first? Yeah, kinda... so, yeah, I could tell you. The, the, yeah. So technically, well, not technically. The, the first show I went to was the night before six twenty six eighty four. Amazing uh, show, yeah. yeah. And uh, six twenty seven eighty four. You know, after the fact, you realize it's a better show. Um, <laughs> I, I hardly, I hardly knew what was happening. I, I, so I was, I was 15. I had encountered the Grateful Dead for the first time, you know, as like a schoolboy. I, I had uh, Skull and Roses, not Skull and Roses. Sorry, I had um, Skeleton, Ship. Skeleton, yeah. Skeleton from the Closet. Yeah. Um, you know, and I started, I, I started knowing that I was going to be hanging around all these kids in prep school who were deadheads. I, I started listening to it and was like, huh, what is this? I mean, like everybody had the experience of not really. It's not a coherent. Uh, 
display of the song of the of the band's musical universe it's it's obviously it, it shows a lot of diverse styles but it's got rosemary on it and and or no it was was what yeah i rosemary's on that album right i mean what the, it's on a greatest hits album it's so strange i think um, so yeah that's yeah, yeah. And, you know and then you go love light you know what does that have to do with <laughs> but um and then you know i i wrote i wrote this i wrote a story i wrote a story for the the uh the new yorker years ago like 12 years ago, 10 years ago, called uh, Deadhead. And I wrote about this. Um, but basically, I had, a, I had a friend who said he was, you know, he was, he had gone to see the dead um, and that they were s sitting around in stools. Uh, they were like these hippies sitting around in stools eating spaghetti. And that was like the first picture outside of like seeing those images of skulls or whatever. That was the first picture I had in my mind of wow. what the Grateful Dead were. Wow. I have since, you know, decided that what, what he was talking about was, and I don't think he had gone, his sister had gone, I think, and they, she'd seen them at Radio City in 1980. We were 11 years old. They probably played their acoustic set, so they're sitting in stools, and she probably said they were just noodling around. They were noodling. They and were, oh, that is noodling. so classic. And like noodling that. became like, a, like hippies eating spaghetti. So I always had this, like, fabulous furry freak brothers like men in overalls like uh you know which they kind of were at a certain point in their career they, certain, they absolutely yeah. were yeah they, totally. weren't, they weren't in 1982 but uh um so that that was something and then you know i, I go to prep school everybody's listening to him and i you know i did this in, in amir barlow's movie too this, this whole spiel about uh you know the, the older cooler kids had all these tapes and you start listening to them and and uh I, I sort of underplayed. I've underplayed, and whenever I describe this, the, the role that live albums played, because really, we I was a vinyl generation, so we'd listen to vinyl a lot. We had Europe '72, you know, Skullfuck, Dead Set, Reckoning, Live Dead, like those five. That was sort of the the the, the very basis of of learning about the band as a the live sound and, and mm, getting more right. of the songs and really understanding that they had all these different modes that, that, that connected to different years i mean go from live dead to europe 72 to dead set to reckoning like that was a, okay this is this is this is deep and so it was like spring of my freshman year i started really listening um and coincidentally like smoking weed and stuff so that, that's when you know yeah, your ears started to open up a lot yeah it's beautiful ears open up yeah. i mean i was like a you know a rock and roll kid classic rock kid i loved heavy metal i love punk music uh you know i, I like pop music I like, you know, I like soul, soul music. I like classical music. I like country music. I liked all that stuff as a kid, you know, but um, this stuff grabbed me. And then I went, so then I went to that show at Meriwether Post Pavilion. The first one was 626, sort of a, kind of arrived just as the show was beginning, like ran in when they were kicking into Casey Jones. And Dude, I got, I know, I, first of all, I want to tell you something. I, 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 627 is deep in my heart. 626 yeah. is a really hot show. Because the Casey Jones, Stranger, and Brent, I think, possibly, and I don't think you're going to know this, but maybe broke a chandelier. He had a, I think he was playing with one hand, played Don't Need Love in the second set. It was very yeah. tripped out. It was an unbelievable show. Continue, please. I mean, it was, it was you know, I, I just remember, I mean, the first thing you remember is the scene, is the heads, uh, this freaks everywhere. And this is before Touch of Grey. This is like, it was still very underground. I know. It was my favorite. It's so still sick. the 70s. You oh know, it's like unbelievable. Please talk cars, about the scene. 
Talk about the, the scene. Yeah, yeah, the cars were shitty cars. People like they're just you know thousands and thousands of real hippies, and it wasn't like it wasn't as like I guess they're college kids, a lot of them. So, but I was just fifteen, so it just and they were sort of biker types. It just was. It was much gnarlier than. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was, you didn't have the Trustafari, yeah. the Trustafarians yeah. hadn't taken over at that point. They may have been there, but they, they, they didn't, nobody was that rich yet. And they were also, uh, right. everybody looked like dirtbags, even the Trustafarians. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, and I didn't know the difference really. I, you know, like it, they were just, and I had weird encounters and, but to the extent that I was able to focus on the music, I mean, I remember certain things and obviously some of the, you know, China Rider was something I remember just blew my mind. And I, and I listened to that China Rider. That's the first thing I listened to when Jerry died. And uh, I got to go back and listen to that. And one. it's like, it's a, it's a romping China Rider, like that high pace, like super speed. Yeah. I love it. Fast and, and hard. And, uh, you know, I just remember the power of that. So we were outside the pavilion. So, you know, it, it was, it was, there was a, a, almost like a layer of distance. Um, I wish I'd been in the pavilion because I think that pavilion was a special place. The sound, there are moments the next night and then the following year in 85 when I was also there, when, when you listen to the odd tapes. That well, you, tape, were the, you were at 85. That was a yeah. very ma magical. That was a uh, magical yeah. week. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. But anyway, they, you can hear on some of those tapes, like Phil lays down a couple bombs that just like <laughs> the people and you can just hear it like it's 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 like a you know it's like a cyclone hitting the shore you can just hear the people just go whoosh and like oh like a kind of a you know it's a cheer but it's not like a cheer in a hockey game it's just like a whoa like it's it's basically three thousand people saying whoa <laughs> you know um and that 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 was that was a special place down in there uh anyway so yeah china rider and then uh and then uh also, they did it i think they did the he's gone uh, yeah women are smarter blue, you know that was fun you know it's like i knew what that music was and he's gone i probably you know got distracted for a while and smoked a joint and then it, then it has had a great you know has a great post jam post you know post the, space uh, yeah unbelievable very no, 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 the, the, just the, no the post he's gone oh, the jam they, out they, of he's gone oh yeah oh yeah and like yeah, you know yeah. Yeah. They, they, it's a, it's, it's not a caution jam, but it's, it's a cool, it's a cool thing with Bobby doing some cool stuff, and then, yeah, I, it was just a, a incredible experience. But the next night is obviously that's one of my favorite tapes too, and it's, it's not beloved anywhere, like it's not recognized anywhere as a great show. Like if, if anybody were to be like top forty morning dues, people don't mention that one. I'm like, but it's my favorite. Dude, um, I got, I want to just tell you something. I'm not sure. First of all, I agree with you. Uh, <laughs> I, I, are you, are you? I, I've listened to the first set. It's so fascinating. Do you realize um, you were there, but um, in the soundboard on the video and every, uh, and, and even the audience, Brent's keyboard, and I think maybe one reason it hasn't shown up as a Dave's picks or, or gets neglected, until Brent's uh, piano is completely yeah. out of the mix until Let It Grow. All of a sudden it just flies into the mix. Now his organ works, but the piano's missing. The Friend of the Devil solo, you can't hear his piano. You just hear really? Jerry playing these beautiful rhythm chops. Anyway, I just did you get a, did you get up to the to the general mission in that show, or were you still out on the behind uh, out on the in I, the grass? I, I only ever saw it there as um, from the from the, the lawn. The lawn. I I think I got down at one point in uh, 85 down to the, the the back of the pavilion because I I, I I have some sense of it, but. 
I don't know. I mean, that was, you know, they, um, six thirty eighty five. the famous shakedown show was, was one of the more sort of cosmic nights of my life. Just, well, you want to talk about that? Yeah. Talk, please talk. I mean, I, I am, my whole show is related to is the the cosmic relevance of humanity. So I, I would love well, you to talk. I mean, about it. It, was, it was just, a, it was just a, you know, I mean, obviously it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, induced by, uh, I think they were Goonie birds. I can't remember. You, you, you it was some mushroom, mushrooms or something, or what was it? No, it was it was it was it was acid. But uh, oh wow! So we got, so you got, got a yeah. got a big night that night. Let's yeah, and it went on and on and on. I mean, the the show was well over before the the adventure ended. It's one of those. Oh my god! No, it's good. I, I mean, mean, you know, we're 16, sixteen years old. You know, I, it's I wouldn't I wouldn't don't try this at home, kiddies. You know, kind of thing. Well, but, I, going back to the scene for a minute. I mean, it it might have been a bunch of dirt. You know, you know hippie real hippies but um i don't know man like did you feel like uh I'm, what is the right word i'm looking for i mean i like i'm debating whether to go to see billy strings tomorrow in phoenix and it's like you know just outside of the ticket prices and sort of the hyper security and you know you don't know what is going on and quite frankly it's you're sort of disassociated everybody's coming from their own walks of life did you feel, even though you were just so young, did you feel like there was a familial quality to that that vibe? Because that pre in the dark, pre coma dead, is it, it to me? It is so raw, and it is really the last. Um, I mean, they got into so much MIDI technology in, in the late '80s; it kind of threw me off. But I mean, the de the the drummers were still carrying all their percussion in '83 and '84. You know, I mean, it was pretty. Yeah. Uh, and I just want you to talk about that family component. Was that the was that something that was uh, unique to you in terms of uh, the concert experience? Um, and I, I agree with you completely. I'm a pre-coma guy. Uh, yeah. it, it, it still had that raw um, punk with a very small P energy, like American uh, underground. Oh, exactly, energy. dude. Exactly. Uh, which, which, which then, it, you know, then the dancing bear era was something completely different and the popularity and the cover of Rolling Stone. It was all nice. It was great to see. And get recognized and suddenly see this weird thing of yours turn up in popular culture that was kind of cool but it wasn't the same it wasn't the same thing and i'm not saying oh it was much cooler when nobody was into it or you know, the old days were better but there was something about that you know early reagan america um mtv cultural you know waste that where they were kind of rumbling around you know this old rickety train <laughs> um, dude it was yeah, so, and so sick. yeah and right. it, but it's true that I, I mean I did feel, I I mean I, I it's hard to know what came first, chicken or the egg here because by then, I've been listening to this stuff and it had some experiences and and was perhaps projecting onto it something that I wanted it to be. But that's the way I perceived it was that, like this is an incredible the the energy was different from you know I'd gone to concerts already I'd gone to see you know concerts at the Garden I'd gone to Jones Beach I'd gone to all these places as a you know to see concerts concerts and that was very much a you go to concert and they play the songs and you you watch them play the songs but this was definitely this people the, the the level of anticipation and excitement and sort of fellow feeling was was uh was definitely new to me and it it it, it got me you know got me in the guts um that said i mean i never I, i'm not one of those I'm like a prickly deadhead, you know, I'm not like, I'm not a big steam guy. I was not like, uh, Mr. Rainstick. I, I, uh, you know, right. I, right. No, I do. I'm, I'm a New York city guy. I'm a little cranky. I'm kind of, 
you know, I can be. Um, You're an urban deadhead. You know, yeah, I kind of walk around, I'd walk up some in the parking lot, I'd be like, yeah, this goddamn, what a Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, I wasn't all like, hey, yeah. Right. It's I not did. that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I, but there's a part of me that got that got some some of that from that too. Um, so it, did it you? Has, did you? Did you go? I'm just curious. In in that in those early innocent years, um, what was the longest? Uh, I don't mini tour that you went on with the dead. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the thing is because you, you know, I'm going to boarding school, so I can't really follow the band. And then I just want to be clear. Your, your, your folks, you guys, you grew up in, in, in Gotham, but then you went to prep school down in Maryland somewhere. No, I went up in New Hampshire. Um, and New Hampshire. It, and it was a big deal there. It was a really big deal there. It was a whole scene. Um, uh, and then, you know, and so you, what happened is, is you know, while I, while I was in school, you would go, um, you know, you'd, you'd get one weekend of the spring tour, you know, you'd get, take a weekend away. Sure. And maybe one of the fall tour. So I kind of would hit one or two in the spring and fall of each of those years. And then, uh, and then there'd be the summer, you know, it was two summers at Merriweather. And then the summer of 86, I went out to California. Um, you went to drive. Wow. Driving across the, uh, I I met some friends in Vegas and we drove across the desert overnight to arrive at Ventura, and uh, we we sort of maybe recapitulating some Hunter S. Thompson driving in the desert at night. Absolutely, and, and we pulled into a Denny's out somewhere outside of Barstow and uh, or whatever it was, and uh, sit down. And the guy behind the counter is like, "Where are you guys going?" And we're like, "We're going to see the Grateful Dead." He's like, "Haven't you heard? Jerry Garcia's in a coma." That's right, Ventura. What? That's right. So we we rolled into Ventura at dawn, and there was sort of a forlorn scene in the parking lot, and we just. This kind of is like, absolutely insane. I cannot believe because I thought you might have gotten into uh, the Greek or Palo Alto. Those were some hot little shows in May. No, I, you I went mean, to Ventura after the because G- Garcia was deteriorating significantly on that Dylan summer tour, and then you go to Ventura, and I, please talk about that. Must have been so. How did you feel? You must. I mean, that, that my heart would have been ripped out at that point. Yeah, it was because I mean, we, I, you know, that that was like peak peak love for the music, and uh, until later, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, you know, here we were. You know, I'm 17, and I'm, I'm, I'm across the continent from my parents. You know, I, we have a car, we have you know, ba- you know, lots of goodies, and you know, we're ostensibly out there to quote look at colleges, but. Uh, Right. And I had a job waiting for me on a, on a ranch, you know, outside of Reno. And so I thought I was going to be going to all those shows in the summer of 86. Um, but no, because he went to the coma after the I didn't go to the show down at, uh, you know, at uh, RFK or any of that stuff where it was a million degrees. Tom Petty and Dylan, all that stuff. And the last show I'd seen before that was four one eighty six in Providence, which was a great show. Actually. Amazing um, show. I wasn't I, that I don't believe that. I think the night before, someone threw a beer bottle at Billy, and they didn't do an encore. I can't remember which yeah. which, which show that was. You know, but I want to ask you how. Please <laughs> tell me that Palmgarden. I mean, roll. I mean, you may have been uh, still in New York. I don't know when summer break was over for the boarding school. Club Casino Ballroom, epic August '84 Garcia band shows up there. You hip to those shows? Eight thirteen. No, uh, that's, I, I kill myself over that. I, I cannot no believe idea. you didn't go there. I, that's unexpected. I didn't ridiculous. even know it existed. <laughs> it was that sweaty club where you just 
he ripped the cover off the ball. The guy that's like, you know, speedballing to himself to death with Absolutely. John Conn. Absolutely. There's a little just ticket fence there. Unbelievable. 120 degrees in that flat floor, <laughs> cement floor, aluminum barn. I mean, that would have probably scared the shit out of me at that age. But I mean, I, that's uh. the stuff. I mean, even even later, all the way through, like, why didn't I go to more Garcia band shows? I mean, I went to my fair share, but I, I, I should have gone to more. Because <laughs> every you? time I went, I'm like, this is the thing. This is the thing. Inject it straight into my veins. You know, you know also, yeah. like, uh, yeah, I mean, it was just, it, 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 I mean, there was always the, th that, that tour actually is so classic because for the one and only time, I mean, they played Nassau Coliseum countless times, but the, this is the one and only time uh, about a three or four days after Club Casino, they played Good Skates Roller Rink in East Setauket, New York, which is five minutes from my house. And oh, no, man. no air conditioning, roller rink. Yeah. And that's, um, the one I'm, that's the one I'm thinking of. Yeah. With the low ceiling. Yeah. That's the one. I mean, just people like my, my buddy was there just was, was sweltering hot, but I mean, yeah. the music was on fire. Yeah. Gritty Garcia. This is the question I had. No, there was no social media. Um, you had some dead newsletters. Uh, were you just as honestly as you can? I mean, you were also young. Was there any chatter, even in 85 or even in 86, did anybody really know in the deadhead scene that Jerry was that was that bad? I mean, we talk about Augusta because we have the video and people are like, oh, his skin was yellow, green. Did anybody really know at that time? Yeah, I don't I don't know. Again, I was a kid. So, you know, my I got I got on board. I, the first time I saw him was at Merriweather and he, he looked like crap, but I was far away. But he was he looked like he, he was a, a frightening sight, you know, haloed from behind by the light. Uh. Yeah. He didn't move, um, you know, uh, and yet the, the guitar, the stuff that was coming out of his guitar was incredible. Uh, correct, yeah. But so then the next time I see him, because I don't get to go to Augusta, and that's another story. But then uh, next Terrible. time I saw him, I think, was spring 85 in Philadelphia. Did, didn't you go to Richmond or Charlotte or something in 84? No. No, no. Okay. Uh, you, you pointed me toward those, and I listened to those again. But uh, I yeah, love them. That, I just yeah. love that era. And we're we're kind of in the minority on that, but no, but I mean, dude, I don't care because it's it's the only wrong. thing I listen to. They are they are wrong, dude. <laughs> <They're all> wrong. <laughs> but uh, but uh, next yeah, time so, in '85, yeah, I'm just wondering so, so if it's shattered. So, yeah. No, yeah. so I I went to see him at uh Nassau Coliseum, and it was the shortest show they'd ever played. And he's a little healthier now than he was in '84, but it was you know there were short shows. He was he was huge, and then the next time I go is Philadelphia, and he has no voice. It's like he's. It's like the froggiest night of his career. Wow, is it four seven or something? Four eight, eighty five, six four seven. Yeah. I, I can't hear which one oh, it is. But, wow, you know, yeah. So he's he a real froggy voice, right? He, right. He, he, he comes out. He start, He sings to Prees, and it's like, oh my. Uh, <laughs> and you know, he he delivered on the guitar. It was an incredible night of playing, and it was sure. an incredible night for me and my my young friends. But nonetheless, it was a sense of like, oh, and that built into my head like this sense that this is fragile he's declining any given night he could be sick as a dog um so it, it was it was not a complete and utter shock to hear that he but i mean we didn't know about diabetes right and and i don't think we really had a sense of i didn't have a sense of of you know what heroin addiction really was and what he absolutely was absolutely correct um, no i mean it's just it's funny because you would know I just feel like in today's modern era, 
the chatter would be incessant, yeah. you know, and, and whereas before it was, he was definitely guarded and you're right. It was a diabetic thing. Um, uh, it, it's just, I, I think that, um, do you feel like, uh, as the years went on, um, that, I mean, maybe it's, it's an obvious answer to this question, but how do you feel your, um, do you think that the dead and their sort of their ability to sort of, you know, sort of entertain in these non-formula trip shows, like you said, you'd go to concerts and you'd see the band perform a song, whatever band it is, just the way it was on the record. And here with the dead, you know, you know, you might have a snoozer first set and then all of a sudden they're busting out morning dew to open the second set rochester 80 and it's the yeah. greatest thing you know and do you feel like in some way just that versatility and that sort of inability to that synesthesia or that inability to pigeonhole allowed you in some way to be so versatile as a writer because i mean i just know i'd fall apart even if i was a professional trying to write about stuff like business or art not outside of certain music but you, you've been able to write so much about so many different things and i just wonder if the dead sort of that sort of those tentacles uh maybe sort of had an ability for you to sort of give you that idea that you could do you could write about anything i mean i think um i could only cop to that on a subconscious level so i wouldn't know <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I definitely I don't, I don't, I don't, God forbid I would model my, my writing on a, on a Grateful Dead song or a Grateful <laughs> Dead performance. Yeah. Um, 62784 would be all right, but yeah. That's yeah, I, mean, yeah. I, I do occasionally <laughs> slip a little like. Uh, that morning you know, dew, man, is the sickest dew of all time. I love it. Yeah. I love it. But I, you know, I, I mean, well, no, I, it, it's all, sub, what, 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 what do they have in common? Well, I, I could start bullshitting, which is what writers do, but I. I think one thing is, is that, um, and this is a thing for, for me with the Grateful Dead, is that, uh, especially Garcia, is really melodic. He's got, he's, he's got a real sense of, of it's about beautiful music. It's, it, he's, he believes in beautiful melodies. Um, totally. In other words, he believes in beauty. A lot of music that, that, that people like and a lot of music that I like, uh, you know, if, if, if it's punk inflected or it's about attitude, it's about noise it's about um energy all these other things which i also love i mean I, I you know i like some hardcore i like i like some pretty pretty heavy metal uh but you know he believes in beauty he for him that's the way his ear worked that's the way you know and he played the music that he likes to listen like he likes to hear um and as it and, relates, uh, and as know, it relates so, to your, your the, the, the to me, yeah, a lot I, of your creation. I want the sentences yeah. to be. I want the sentences to be, to be clear, but you know, but to have some beauty in them, you know, if possible. You know, how did the, the, how I guess the paragraph I often say about Jerry is that like he played in paragraphs. He he didn't just like hammer up and down. He didn't noodle a lot of the time. You know, he actually, you know, some of these solos were actually had architecture and architecture that was like imagined on the spot or felt as he was doing it or was it you know or he was connecting things that he'd been working on um but they put they read like paragraphs you know there's a logic to it and when he lands it's like he lands the thing and it's like you know it's the end of a paragraph period you know return new paragraph and um you know that is as an as an aesthetic as something to to reach for 
um, there, there's probably some affinity there, but you know, that's just that's just that, that's a preference I have in 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 my uh, music and art, you know. Um, how how did you? I like chaos. I mean, I like chaos too. Of course, the, one of the great things about the Grateful Dead is chaos. I mean, even <laughs> you know, Miami, nineteen eighty nine, Dark Star, just scaring the shit out of all the touchheads who are you know being taken being taken for the first time to see the dead and, and given touchheads, dude, and they're, and they're given well, that and they they play this like half an hour malevolent dark star and everybody leaves you know has to flee the arena i love that stuff too uh but i but but he is a beautiful player garcia you know his, his lines and i, I like that i admire that. I, I do too i mean it's uh it's remarkable the stuff that was just flowing out of him in, on the spot too which is uh did you ever work in in uh in any kind of hard news capacity uh I mean, because it's know, impressive. If you say no, then that's really one of the most impressive deals. I mean, I, I was trying to – the question I had was like, you know, how – if you did, how you sort of have – you know, you learned to temper your own biases and sort of keep an open mind to all the information out there and not get caught in a bubble. Uh, you know, I, I was I worked for a, a weekly newspaper in New York called The New York Observer, which was, you know – it was it was report it was driven by reporting and and uh, we sought to make news uh, and and break news and you know you reported things and it had a newspaper format but it also it was a little cracked it had you know it um, it had a mischievous a mischievous wink to it too and wow. so there, it had attitude and so you know and that was it wasn't the New York Times it wasn't the Washington Post it wasn't it wasn't you know um, the Atlanta uh, Journal Constitution yeah I, I did. Yeah. Uh, so no, I, I never really have, uh, but I, that was, you know, that was as close to it as I got. Um, what was mischievous? I mean, what, what, what did you, what kind of stories were you? It's yeah. a lot about, it's a lot about New York and, uh, you know, it was sort of, uh, poking fun at powerful people co covering, uh, you know, covering politics, the culture industry, uh, sort of, uh, finance and the whole the whole city uh you know the the sort of uh aspirational tumult of the city and people trying to everyone on the make and you just sort of write about them in a, in a way where you're often poking them in the eye and um you know or, or pasting a kick me sign on their back and running away it was it was a little bit you know yeah it was uh you know we were, we were a bunch of kids we were all horribly underpaid we had great editors smart people and we were kind of scrappy and we thought of ourselves as underdogs as like the bad news bears and uh um i still so think was, i love that it was I... fun it was fun it was a great place to work uh, i learned a lot from a lot of good people uh but it was you know there was definitely an emphasis on break news break news but we you know it was we we, we weren't we weren't square enough to really be the new york times well yeah you know, and i mean we it gets to a point yeah, I mean, it gets to a point where sometimes you're you're breaking, you're finding news to break as opposed to actual news, you know. And then I just, I I am wondering if you could talk about the pivotal, if there was uh, a seminal piece of work that, as you look back now, it, it opened a door for you. Somebody took notice and gave you the opportunity to either do talk of the town, you know, got you in. Who was the cat that? You know, obviously, it's everybody's choice to walk through the door once it's open. But who opened that door for you into a 
you know, the, the, the not so locker room ish uh, observer and into more of the, 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 uh, I don't know, the upper echelons of the New Yorker. Well, I got, I got hired at the New Yorker, uh, in the year 2000 at the age of 30, 31, uh, David Remnick hired me. I was hired, and hired by Susan Morrison, who's the editor of Talk of the Town, and I was hired to be uh, a reporter, a writer, and also an editor. So I was doing both. Mm. So I was sort of a deputy editor of the Talk of the Town. So I was editing Talk of the Town pieces, and and you know, which is a lot of rewrite work. They hired me, I think, in some ways to be a rewrite man, um, and I was also writing them. Um, and so it, you know, it was really that you know, going from the tree house to the, to the, <laughs> the main house. The sandlot. Um, yeah, I did. Yeah. It was, yeah. It, it, that was, you know, it meant that maybe I can do this and maybe I don't have to go to law school. Maybe I don't have to run away and join the circus. It was like, okay, maybe I can do this. And, um, and there are a lot of very smart um, uh, and generous people at, at the New Yorker writers, editors, fact checkers who are awesome and uh and others who you know have been supportive and helpful and who have you know busted my chops and um and uh that that's really it's just one it's this one one that one opportunity getting that job was it was a blessing for me it's it's a it's a good fit it has been a good fit uh as someone who was raised in new york city raised on new yorker cartoons and uh and 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 you know on James Thurber and um, Roger and Angel, Edie, yeah, I mean, all yeah, Edie White and all these yeah. guys, you know, that was just it was in my DNA anyway. So, um, so I'm very fortunate to have had that opportunity uh, and to still have it. I mean, you know, um, and the the thing keeps evolving. I mean, the, the funny thing is, I've said this to other people, like the New Yorker, everybody has a, a picture of what it is in their head. But it evolves and it changes over time as the people change, as the as the times change, as the sort of nature of media changes. I mean, they're a little like the Grateful Dead, you know. It's just like <laughs> yeah, did, the, did, did the audiences keep getting younger? That's the, <laughs> that is with the dead. Well, they no, not. I, I mean, not really. Well, they do. Yeah, I mean, we have a young younger readership, sure. obviously, with so all the ones that were reading it when we were kids, right? They're all dead. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, no, that's explain. I really. Uh, if you can, how not specifically you, but how have has the New Yorker adapted? Uh, how has it changed in this this era of of uh, I I don't know what else. It's just cognitive dissonance. No longer is there just this. Everybody can disagree on the same set of facts. Now it's just everybody's in their own silo, and it is there's so much dissonance. And and you guys are rooted in. Uh, you know, commentary based on reality, and we're not all there, especially in the political climate. And I wonder how you guys have adapted to that. Well, I mean, maybe I won't answer the question head on, but I, you know, I'll say that, you know, they've obviously evolved. There, we now have a, you know, a thriving and and very prolific uh, website web web operation. We, you know, it's almost like a daily newspaper and stuff every day comes out you know putting right. out a ton of stories uh it's reporting commentary you know it's not just the magazine every, once a week it's an ongoing daily enterprise uh and you know there's 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 a, there's the videos there's the radio show uh so there's a lot coming out it's a, it's a it's a big operation or 
people, you know, of all kinds working there. There are a lot of staff writers and we're not, we're not in the office really. We're just all like strewn all over the world. And some of us are, you know, better writers than reporters. Some of us are better reporters than writers. Some of us are, you know, it, it, it's, it, it contains multitudes. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that this, this era, whatever you want to call it, this, this age of humankind, which is to my eyes, a, pretty crappy age uh, uh human uh, human human animals at this point yeah yeah totally. i mean yeah. The, the, the ape we're, we're we're not a good ape uh <laughs> not right now but, i mean yeah well we haven't ever been i mean nothing ever changes and, and people have been horrible to people you know i was you know anyway i'm not gonna but uh but yeah i mean obviously in some ways the new yorker has positioned itself for whatever set of reasons as you know was the the opposition to the the trump ascendancy um but it wasn't it wasn't out of like a, it wasn't necessarily because it's quote unquote liberal or um absolutely it's just uh, you know i you know whatever that's whatever trump stands for in that context whether it's in curiosity or I mean, I don't want to get political here, but I, you know, it's just, uh, I mean, he basically, of... he stands for everything that's opposite of what, I mean, I feel like you guys are always trying to, no matter what, doesn't matter what the article's about, it makes you want to think or it makes you right. think deep thoughtfulness, uh, compassion, yeah. inquiry, um, nuance. Yeah, this is that's the opposite of the mag the the maga movie. So you know, it's yeah, just, it's it, natural. It yeah. Sadly, I mean, that's that's, that's it is. It's it. horrible because there's, yeah. there's there's a lot of uh, you know anger and and uh, uh, that has to do with real political absolutely justified anger, but it's all yeah, yeah, being, totally yeah, justified totally. anger, and and uh, it's just there's a it's just there's uh, too much bathwater for that baby. Uh, it's just it's oh, just man. bad, and I I don't want to get into it too much. No, it's fine. You know what? I, I just I, I want to get you on your bike ride, but just one yeah. final question. <laughs> Set one here with yeah, yeah. Tom Garden. Sure. How have you specifically tried to maintain in your journalism a balance between like still connecting with humanity? I mean, I started my show twelve years ago. I didn't know what I was doing. I was reaching out to Pat Martino and Jack DeJunette and Dave Brubeck. And I realized I wasn't lonely, but I wanted to use technology as a way to keep, to connect humanity and, and make these connections. And that's how we connected. And I just want to know how you, I feel like a lot of journalists today and through no fault of their own, because we're, we're not a good ape. A lot of the, there's an imbalance. Technology is superseded, gone way past human uh, humanity. And I wonder how you've tried to maintain that balance in your reporting and your research and your writing. Uh, that's another, that's another good question. <laughs> we can uh, save it for part two. We can do it. You know, no, you wanna, no, no, yeah, no, I'll yeah. answer that. I'll answer yeah. that. And it will, it will, it will, uh, yeah. It's, 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 it's interesting because the COVID era and this, you know, I, I not being in the office all the time and being home a lot and, you know, some of this is just ages of the ages you go through as a human, you know, there's, you're in your twenties and you're out all the time and you're making new friends and your world's kind of expanding. And, and then, then you, like in my case, I had kids and you're very devoted to your kids and your right. weekends or in my case, you know, hockey dad, hockey coach, all that, you know, and then, uh, 
suddenly here, you know, your empty nester and you're 50 something and, uh, you know, <laughs> not going to an office and, you know, it's, it's a more, uh, static social, less dynamic social environment. The, 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 the electronic machines have helped, uh, things like this. I enjoy doing them. I enjoy meeting people. I have, I weirdly have quote unquote friends, you know, that I like email with or text with whom I've never met, which is so weird. Right. But it, you know, these are conversations that go on. I have ongoing conversations all day and text like a teenager on my phone with old friends where we're just cracking each other up or arguing about shit. And, uh, you know, that's, that's helpful. Cause that is, that is human contact, but there's nothing beats the real thing. And, uh, to, to bring it back to professional shore, it's, it's wonderful to go to dinner with someone or have, have, go have a couple of beers, watch a basketball game, whatever it is, go for a walk in the park. These things are, these things are sacred. Um, so is for me, and I haven't done it in a while because I've been on book leave and I'm not going to talk about that now, no. but uh, when you go out reporting, I've, you know, I've done like a lot of talk piece, talk to the town pieces, which are quickies, you know, two, three hours with someone. But if you go and like immerse yourself in a story, especially if you're going on site, you know, uh, and I do a lot, I've done a lot of that. Like you go to a place and spend a week, whether it's Davos or the kids pool or the, or the masters or Margaritaville retirement community, whatever it is, I just go and hang out <laughs> and work my way. Uh, yeah. Get to know people, listen to people's stories. You're going 20 hours a day. You're hardly sleeping. You're going from one thing to another. You're making connections um you're 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 listening your ears are open you're thinking you're you're steering conversations like it's like everything's open it's exhausting in the way that like scuba diving is weirdly exhausting because everything's happening at once to you uh, uh <laughs> reporting in the field is exhilarating life-affirming uh pr provocative but it's also exhausting because i just think everything's going on once you're recording you're you're uh doing Doing logistics you're making sure you have what you need you're listening you're steering the conversation you're trying not to embarrass yourself you know all at once all these things i guess i think sales is probably a little like this maybe but uh absolutely um uh so uh i think most importantly you're completely yeah. in the, in those times even though it is exhausting you are completely in the moment and that is the yeah. most magical part of, of 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 doing creative work you know yeah and so the reporting part which i haven't been doing as much of is that's it's a great thing to be able to do. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's it's a it's a gift from the gods to have that as a job. Um, the writing the writing is its own pain in the ass, but being out and meeting people and being in strange situations and and uh, and trying to sort your way through subcultures uh, or you know or political structures or social organisms uh, is it's 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 a it's a it's a blast and it's it 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 it. it, it makes me feel young or it makes me feel old both at the same time. Um, and I, I, you know, I haven't done that in a little while, but I, every time you do it, you, you, it bears fruit for, for years. I mean, you know, each, each project, you know, you meet people and sometimes you might not connect with them for 10 years, but they're still out there, you know? And I, it's like, it's like having a, it's like having like, it's like I have like 40 illegitimate families. <laughs> <laughs> Nick Palmgarden, man, I cannot wait. Hopefully, we'll get you down here to cover the border or whatever. You come down to Zona, but or I'll come. Where, where are you in Arizona? In Tucson. Oh, I'm dying to get down there. 
Well, man, listen. Look, it's, mate, it's like I, almost top of the list. I want to do a whole Albuquerque down to the border, out down to Tucson. Hey, man, uh, listen. The, call, the desert, the whole thing. Yeah. Just wait, wait till the fall when it's not burning 110 degrees. But listen, man, it is so you get you made my day. Thank you for taking the time, and we'll definitely do it again, man. Thank you for uh, being interested in any of this. I hope you know. I hope I haven't. Just Dude, this thing's this thing's gonna fly around. People are gonna be fired up to hear this, man. Really? Yeah, yeah. Guess the end. I can't wait to uh, let me know if you're going to go back on guest of the year. Have you have you won a championship already? I, I can't. No, tell I no. I they just had me in like the previous week to yours. I was the, I was the guest curator. So what well, he he used a couple leftover tracks. Oh my god! How could you put a China doll with no vocals on it? I mean, it was insane, oh, dude. That, that was thing, <laughs> that, that's a good one, man. That, that's that's so that's like Randy China doll, <laughs> dude. That was it. Didn't sound like whatever seventy said. It was so weird and i was like that dude when he said who you i didn't at the time it didn't register but i'm like whoever that is he, i'm like he's got it he's got some serious ears anyway i think you're you like fuck you nick Bongard. <laughs> no, dude i was and able I was, to strangle him yeah i was walking down the street in new york going to see a doctor like a middle-aged man does and you were you were, you were like you know fuck you nick if Bongard. i'm gonna I was, strangle that nick Bongard. i was, I was uh, kind of laughing like snidely whiplash <laughs> Uh, All right, my man. Yo, right. man. Take care. Good to hear Thanks you, brother. Be cool, Be man. Well. Yeah. yeah. All right. Bye.